When are we gonna talk about it? When are we gonna come together and clean up what we like? Do you wanna talk about it? Hello, welcome to Finding Our Voices, the podcast. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of Finding Our Voices, which is at findingourvoices.net, and which is survivors, including me, breaking the silence of domestic abuse by standing proud and speaking loud. He had us all lined up at one point, my youngest daughter, my middle child, my son, and then my mom. And he had me in a chokehold with a knife against my throat in front of the kids. And they're all crying. And he said, I see a cop. If I so much as see a cop come up the driveway, I'm going to slit every one of your throats, starting from youngest to oldest. Leaving my mom the last because she was the bitch that created me. Not having him know where I was. Being safe is huge. It's huge when you're laying there at nighttime and watching every car that goes by, and being scared that it's him. This is a two-parter with Jessica and Mia. For Jessica, drugs made the abuse much worse. Welcome, Jessica. And now, let's talk about it. So, Jessica, thank you for coming and talking with me today. Yeah, sure. How long ago was this relationship that we're talking about? Oh, God, like 11 years ago. What was your life like when you met him? I was working as a psych nurse in Massachusetts, living with my parents, fresh out of college. What was your headspace like at the time? My headspace was never good. I always struggled with self-esteem from a tiny, tiny girl. I drank a lot. When did you start drinking? Oh, God. 15. Drank to blackout right away. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. What did you think about him when you first met him? Do you remember? Uh, very handsome, very charming, very nice. And what way do you think he was charming? (sighs) He was just good with his words. He knew what to say to make you feel good. And how soon was it after you met him that you were in a relationship? Instant, almost. It was fast. It was really fast. My parents are very protective, so I hid our relationship from them because I knew they wouldn't approve. He had a lot of tattoos and he had a record in and out of jail. My parents found out we were dating. My dad knows a lot of people, so he somehow found out his whole history, which to this day I still don't know. Um, And they had an intervention with us, with me, my whole family, of like, you need to leave him or... And at that point, I wasn't leaving him and I was going to do what I was going to do. So I get kicked out. So we actually were homeless for like maybe a week. I kind of cashed out on my PTO that I could at work. PTO? uh, Pay time off. I kind of finagled it with my work that I could get a large lump of money to get a down, like a security deposit on an apartment. And we... How about, did he have any money? No. No. He had my money. (laughs) Mm. Were you still working? Yes. He was very much into drugs and very quickly got me into drugs. Um, What was he into? Anything he could get his hands on. He didn't discriminate. Um, We did a lot of ecstasy. We did a lot of opiates. We did a lot of benzos. He smoked a lot of pot. I didn't like pot at that point. What do you think it was about you or him that when you met him that got further into the drugs because it made me feel good the way you said described him into drugs tattoos and jail so was there any surprise in in the way he he became he made me feel special he made me feel loved he made me feel like i haven't i hadn't felt before i didn't realize how bad his drug addiction or any addiction was I think until looking back at it because I was so bad also so I think his behavior towards me surprised me 
a lot more than like the drugs. Like I kind of knew that going into it. Not going into it. I knew that fairly quickly afterwards. And what was the behavior to you that you you mean? Um, violent towards me. One time he got so mad at me, he threw an Xbox and smashed it over my head and knocked me unconscious. When do you think it turned the relationship so that you, you felt loved? And then when, when did they, when did that kind of thing turn? A couple months into it, he started stealing my money. He would take my debit card. Um, he would pretend I lost it. And then he would dig in my car and magically find it. Um, so that started. I just never confronted him. Financial thing was pretty big. Huge. I had more than thousands of dollars saved up. And that all went away and put me more in the negative ridiculous amount of money he took in addition you were paying the rent it sounds like i was paying everything i was paying for our drugs i was paying for the rent i was paying everything plus he was taking your money plus he was taking my money he became paranoid that i was cheating and always thought i was cheating even though i was always with him if i was not at work um he started driving me to work and taking my car he would take my phone sometimes, wouldn't let me take my phone to work. What was the thing with the car? What was that all about? He didn't have a car. He didn't have a license. They took his license. He thought that I was having an affair at work, I guess, and use it. But then would be very sweet and very... So he like made up for it very quickly, which made me feel like I was crazy of like, am I understanding the situation correctly like is this really happening so that started and then the violence started you know like throwing things at me I tried to break up with him a couple times Um, he tried to kill himself he jumped out of my car one time when I was trying he really did try to kill himself he wasn't just threatening oh no he tried like in front of me um, jumped out of my car while I was driving fairly fast and what did that do when he did that? What did that what did that do to you? Um, I panicked and I blacked out almost and I, I kept driving. And then we ended up back together a couple weeks later, I think, not even. He, I tried to break up with him, I think, a, f- a few days before Thanksgiving. I'd had enough. I'd missed my family. I was tired of living the way I was living. I just wanted my family back. And I tried to break up with him and he smashed a glass pipe and slit his wrist from wrist up all the way to elbow. Did Um, that make you want to stay with him? He cut so deeply, he cut through tendons. I had to convince him to let me bring him to the hospital. I had to keep locking my doors because he kept trying to jump out on the highway. So did did that make you think that you needed to get away from him or not? It did, but then it made me scared of what would happen if I actually did get away from him. So we got back together after that. He went to a psych hospital. It was just the same pattern. Crazy, crazy, craziness. Like, I spent one Christmas. um, My dad refused to come to Christmas. Um, To your house, you mean? um, To my Nana's. We all would go to my Nana's house. My dad would refuse to go. That morning, I spent Christmas at Bridgewater State Hospital because he was in prison. Um visiting him it was just a very surreal life like I don't it got bad fast and it stayed bad for a really long time do you remember thinking like how, how did you think it was going to end he had me so twisted in my head I would picture us getting married and living happily ever after and then some days be really scared and not know how I would get out or if I would ever feel safe again. Did you talk to anybody about what was going Mm-mm. on? No, because I think I was so messed up with all the drugs. I was living day by day, week by week, and just living in chaos. But did and your friends or family reach out to you? I didn't have any friends oh. at that point. Nobody wanted anything to do with me because I was just such a mess. I would go to work with bruises on my arms, and a couple of people would ask me what was wrong or if I was okay, and I blamed it on patients because I worked in a psych hospital. Besides that, I didn't see anybody. He wouldn't let me see anybody. I would see my mom once in a great, great, great while because she couldn't not see me. But it how, was how quick. Would he, how, would he, how would he not let you see people? He would get angry if I even brought that up, and then it would be a huge fight. Like, So... 
not that he didn't let me see. Well, he acted like I couldn't see people and that just made me anxious and nervous and I didn't want to upset him. So it wasn't worth just, it. It wasn't worth it. Right. So I just didn't because it would turn into like a week long fight afterwards if I did. So I just didn't. <laughs> How else did you tailor you, yourself to, to avoid a fight? Uh, I let him take my phone when I was at work. I'd have to check in all the time. So I would call him from my work phone. He would make you check in during the day mm -hmm. to tell you to tell him what? Just so he could hear my voice that I wasn't, that I was actually working. And were you on drugs when you were working? Yep. Oh, so you went, did, did, did you not get into trouble for that at I work? did. I almost lost my nursing license. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. how, how did they find out? Uh, I ended up trying to steal drugs. Oh. Mm -hmm. how, did then, you, how did you not lose it? Um, I, so Massachusetts, they have SARP. Um, it's a five-year, like, you have to prove that you're sober and trying to do better. So I did five years of drug testing and... Um, counseling and mm -hmm. yep yep almost losing my job made me get sober which was a blessing so how did you get away from him he um he we woke up one morning I was barely awake and he punched me square in the face um shattered my nose um Just realized out of, out of the blue mm-hmm yep so tell me, take me through the steps. What happened? Um, I don't know. We were sleeping. We woke up. We were awake for maybe a couple minutes. He went in his crazy paranoid rampage of I was cheating on him again. It was in his head that I was always cheating on him. He got so angry at me. We were sitting very close on the bed, like face to face, closer than me and you right now. And he punched me square in the face without thinking, without um realized what he did and tried to console me and I was screaming and crying was your nose bleeding? blood everywhere there was blood up on my wall there was blood there was splattered everywhere did he break your nose mm -hmm. so you have a broken nose yeah does it look different than it used to look oh yeah my nose is still crooked today oh yeah I wouldn't allow him to console me so he got even more angry um grabbed me by the throat um threw me down on like laying on top of me on the bed and strangled me and told me that if I told anybody he would kill me and my family. Is that the worst that it ever been? Yeah. Yeah, it was really bad. Um, so things were getting got worse. Progressively worse. Yeah. yeah. Drug use was getting worse. His paranoia was getting worse. Um Was he stoned at that moment? Maybe left over from the night before, but we had just woke up, so I'm not quite sure. Yeah. So he tried he took my phone and smashed it, trying to break it. So I like went into survival mode. I somehow tricked him to go outside with me because he wanted to get something out of my car. Like he left something in my car. So I convinced him somehow to like come downstairs to my car. We would get it. And as soon as he was far enough from the door, I ran back inside and locked the door. Oh, it was your um, place. It was my place. Yeah. Were both your names on it or just no, you? Just me. Mm -hmm. So I locked the door. Thankfully my phone was working. Um, my first thought was to call work to let them know I wouldn't be in. And then um, I finally got enough courage to call 911. What do you mean you got enough courage? Why did that take courage? I don't know. I don't know. A part of me, I guess, still loved him. And I was afraid what would happen. I don't, I don't know. I didn't want him to get in trouble. I loved him, but I was afraid of him and hated him at the same time. Did he do things to make you feel sorry for him? Well, to make did, him feel... He threatened killing himself. That's one time. thing. Mm -hmm. did, did, did he have a sob story of his background? Was oh, yeah. Part of it? Yeah. So did you feel sorry for him on that basis? I did. And I thought that he was a good man that was sick and trying to get better. But I don't... You thought he would get better? I thought he did, would. I thought if I helped him enough... He would get better and things would be okay. What was the help? What's involved with the help when you say you helped him? Trying to get him on medication to help. Trying. I mean, I didn't try to get him off drugs because I didn't want to get off drugs. But um, get him into counseling. Did that work? Did he do any of that? He went to counseling with me once. He took meds for a little bit but then stopped. Nothing helped. Do you think he wanted to be helped? 
I don't know. I don't know. I think a part of me still thinks that everybody is good and they just need to see that, but some part of me thinks that that's not true anymore. That some people just do bad things and that's just who they are. So you locked him out of the house. What happened then? Um, he sat outside on my steps. You called 911. I did. What call did you tell 911? I said, I just got hit. They're like by a car. I said, No, my boyfriend. They're like, Okay, we'll be right there. Um, they had to call back up on him because he resisted arrest. He was an ex boxer, so he was very, he's strong. I was freaking out because A, I was in shock that I had just gotten my nose broken and trying to process everything. And then there was a lot of commotion outside, a lot of yelling, and I'm like freaking out. And the cop got mad at me because I was freaking out. Really? Yeah. They took me by ambulance to the hospital. And while I was walking from my apartment to the ambulance, they had him in the back of the police car with the window down. So he had his head out screaming, apologizing, telling me how much he loved me. I can't believe they allowed him yeah. to say those things to you. Yeah, with the window down. Mm-hmm. At the time, did you think that was like wrong that or was it only later that you realized that they should Only later that I was like, oh my God, like, what? first of all, why was the window down? Second of right. all, why wasn't he already taken away before you brought me out? And third of all, nobody was like kind to me. No. <laughs> no, there was not one... The ambulance, once I got in the ambulance, they were kind. Um, wow. But. Your nose is bleeding. Bleeding, gushing blood everywhere. I'm like crying hysterically, trying to process what just happened. And yeah, it was a shit show. Did they charge him with anything? They did. So the funny thing was, <laughs> we were living in Rhode Island at the time. He was on probation in Massachusetts. Oh, what, by the way, what were his jail sentences for? Because you said he had jail record. I don't know. You never found out? No. Did he ever tell you what they were for? Like, even a lie? Um, I think uh, stealing... Domestic violence, do you think? Uh, he never admitted. So... So you never found out? Nope. So he was on probation in Massachusetts. We were living in Rhode Island. He pled no contest in Rhode Island. To what? To domestic violence against me. So it means that he didn't plead guilty or innocent. It That's was like ridiculous. a no contest. Did and you think? He got put on probation. Don't you think he should have pled guilty? Uh, yeah. How did, that come, how did that Should come? have been sentenced to jail for violating his probation in Massachusetts. And strangling you, by the way. Yeah. But how did that come about? Were you in touch with the DA's office? They automatically pressed charges. So because the cops were called and I was brought to the hospital, I had to go to the courthouse and fill out paperwork. And then they automatically placed... A month PFA against him. Did they know that he he's strangled you? Mm-hmm. I told him the whole story. So a month? But he got off. He got... So he was on dual probation through Rhode Island and Massachusetts. He broke the PFA almost daily. He would call my work. he call your work? Yeah. And this is on a friggin' PFA? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost I would daily. call the police and they would say there's nothing we can do about it. But, but wasn't the PFA no contact? Mm-hmm. Well, then how... Mm-hmm. Because they didn't know where he was. He was hiding somewhere. That's what their answer to you was? Mm-hmm. Yep. They can't well, do what anything What would he say to you, when they come? I'm sorry. I love you. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Was your father good to you? Did he yeah. Ask? Yeah, he was. He was very kind. And how about your mother? Very kind. We haven't really talked about it since. You haven't? <laughs> no. What, I lived... what prevented you from going back to him? I was so angry. I was so, so angry. Part of me really did still love him. He made it so awful that I couldn't go back. But what he did, there's just no way you could have gone back. No, to because I would never feel safe again. It was one thing to throw things at me. It was one thing to call names, but you like he physically broke a body part. That was a lot of power and a lot of anger, like... I've seen anger before, but that was was scary. I didn't think I was getting out of there. Did nope. you feel involved in the process at no. all? No. It's, Rhode Island's very different. And I don't know if Rhode Island's different now. Because I know Maine, like, there's, like, the domestic um, violence advocate. And there's, like, a lot. <laughs> yeah, don't, 
don't think the, the advocate no. is what it sounds like because the advocate, <laughs> at least in Knox County, is not an advocate for the uh, victim. They work for the DA's office, and I didn't have a good experience, and uh, people I've spoken with have not had a good experience. Well, then maybe it is the same. <laughs> I didn't talk to anybody. There was no, what do you want to see happen? Do you want to speak? There was nothing. It was completely out of your hands. Yep. I went and I wrote what happened on a piece of paper. What do you think about that? I feel like... It was made okay, like, that it was just brushed off, and it happened, and then it was over. It made me feel crazy for feeling so angry and so upset by it. And it made me feel crazy that when the PFA was broken and I wanted it to stop, nothing, quote-unquote, could be done. So it was like, well, what's the point of having the PFA I changed my cell phone number immediately. And so the only way he can contact me was through work. And then I got fired from work. So. Mm, because of the drugs? Mm-hmm. Did your drug taking increase or decrease after you left him? Increased. Very much. And then I lost my job. And I went to detox. And from detox, I went to rehab. And from rehab, I went to a sober house. So I was in the sober house until I was almost a year sober. And so how long have you been sober for? 10 years. And do you think that a relationship like that, you could have been in one if you hadn't been doing drugs or drinking? The way I felt about myself, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the drinking and drugging didn't help things, but I had no self-worth and I didn't know how to stand up for myself. And It took a long time after being sober to learn how to do that, like to stand up for myself and not accept the unacceptable. Do you think much about that first relationship? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's still very much in me. I feel like sometimes it's hard to get into arguments when people get angry or upset even though it's not at me, I get anxious. Um, and then I need to, like, make it better. I've gotten better at that, but I don't know if that'll ever go away. That's interesting, because I feel the same way, and I never realized that it probably comes from that. Really? From being in a relationship oh, yeah. like that. It definitely does. Yeah, I get, I'm, I, if I think that someone is upset with me, I'm really anxious. Yeah. And I really want to, like, do something about it, even and though fix it. I want to fix it, even though it may not even be that they're, they're probably not mad at me, but I'm just yeah. thinking they are. They don't even have to be mad at me. They could right. be mad at something else. They mm. could be mad at like fixing the fridge or like just that like anger. Yeah. Even though some anger's good, I can't, I can't deal with it. <laughs> they change you forever. And a part of me is upset that I'm changed forever. Mm. It's like sometimes I sit and think, like, who would I be if that didn't happen to me? I knew I wasn't alone in it when it happened to me. I know it wasn't, like, a unique situation. Well, it's funny, though, isn't it? Like, I don't you think that you do think you're in a unique situation? Like, I do you think of yourself as, like, a domestic abuse victim when it was going on? No. Or did you just think you did have a unique situ- situation? Yeah. I thought my situation was unique. Yeah, I mean, me, while I was in it, yeah. like... Like, I didn't say, okay, I'm the only, I'm one of millions of domestic abuse right. victims. No, it was no, like, this I is, wouldn't this even admit that way. it was a domestic abuse. No, it's like, this is just the way he is, you yeah. know? Yeah. He, it's just, he's just like that. Yeah. You've got to be careful around him. Like, yeah. he's got all these. You have to be careful. That was the thing. It was like walking on eggshells every day. Like, what's going to set him off today? But I didn't think of him as an abuser. Did you think of him as an abuser? No. No, which is the sick thing because he, it was very abusive. Right. Like, now we think of that in ter- those terms. Like, you were the one who was abused, and he was an abuser. But when you're in it, you don't think of him as an abuser. You just think of him as he's your boyfriend or husband, yeah. and he just, that's the way he is. That's just your relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. That's just your relationship. So right. it brings you into it, too. It makes you, oh, yeah. sound, it sounds like you're, like, takes two to tangle that whole thing. Right. You almost feel like it's, like, you're a part of it. Like Right. Where and, and in the real thing, it was happening to me. Exactly. Like I had no control over Exactly. It. And maybe that's part of why you don't get out because you just think it's something you, that's, you're both it's happening to both of you. Right. Mm-hmm. The dynamic. Yep. 
at least with mine, like he made me feel loved. He made me feel and, protected. How weird right? Yes. Like he was the only one that loved me. And yeah. Nobody else would take care of me. And protecting and... me when he was the biggest danger. <laughs> it's amazing. Did you feel like he was just protecting you in some way? Yeah. It's, it's a pattern. That's the way it happens. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, because if it happened instantly, nobody would stay. You know? If they hit you first, second date, you're like, see ya. There's no investment. There's no emotional exchange. They wait till they know they got you. And that's also why you don't call the police, because if it's a stranger who does it to you, you're going to call the police. Right. But someone that you You're invested you- in. You love yeah. them. As sick as it is, you love them. Like... You can't just all of a sudden turn that off. You want to help them. You want to fix them. You want to save them. And you want that relationship that maybe you had in the beginning. Because you know it's possible. Because you've seen it and you felt it and you want that. But it never goes back to that. Do you feel like being in one of these abusive relationships is almost like being in a drug? The way you feel like you can't get out of it? Yeah. It's those ridiculous highs and then ridiculous lows. Like he made me feel... So loved and so special. He loved me with every ounce of his body. And then it got really dark. How else is it like a drug? That's that ongoing drama. Like you just, you're living in the drama. So it's almost like an electric charge. And you and you kind of, you want that electric charge. Yeah. You need it. You need it. You can't just like live like a, a quiet, peaceful day-to-day life. Like. You want those big highs and those big lows. And do you think it's as, it's almost as hard to get leave as it is a, as it is hard to leave a job? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I went through a lot of different emotions afterwards. Like, I went through intense rage and intense anger. And then I went through almost, like, a missing sadness. Like, grieving the loss of that relationship and... It was hard if I didn't right away change my phone number and like lose all my contacts. And I think I would have tried contacting him again afterwards. I, I just got all these books on cults because to me, it's like a cult, right? Like to me, you need to be deep, deprogrammed. Seriously, you need like a lot of time and space away. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the number one thing that I would say to anybody is if you're in one of these relationships, just tell the person. You need to go visit your mother for something. You need to leave for a few days. But, you know, just because you need to see someone, you know, make sure they don't think it's a boyfriend. Because, right. But um, because the time and the space away is what is going to save you. Yeah, you have, like, a chance to, like, breathe almost and process a little. You need to get them out of your head. Mm-hmm. And the only reason you're gonna you can do that is if the the space, the yeah. physical space yeah. away. And yeah. not talking. Like no zero talking. That's what saved me is like I changed my number right away because I was so angry. I changed my number right away. I like started fresh. Cause if I didn't, I don't think I ever would have left. How are you different now? I have a clear head and I don't have the high highs and the low lows anymore. Four kids, a great husband, a house. Who needs those high highs in it? I don't at all anymore. (laughs) I am so happy with like my very quiet life. I mean, I have four kids, so it's not quiet. Just contentment is nice. It's like a sense of peace finally. Did you have any tattoos that commemorate any of this that we're talking about? That was while I was in it. The shattered, broken heart. Oh, yeah. While you were in it. Oh, yeah. You had that while you were in this abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Because yeah. that's how you felt. Mm-hmm. We're going to start a teen offshoot. Oh, really? Fire Voices. Yeah. yeah. And Lyra Collegian has done some things for us. Her tagline is, love should feel good. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, right. if, if that is what your, your relationship is... A shattered, broken heart. Yeah. Doesn't that tell you right there that that's not love? Without a doubt, it does. Yep. But at the time. But at the time. I don't know what I thought it was supposed to be. Right. What we think it's supposed to be. Yeah. That's what we've got to clear up for people, Uh for young people. Yeah. Love should feel good. Love should feel good, bottom line. Yeah. Love should not be painful in any way. No. And it shouldn't be difficult and messy and hard. How old are your girls? My little ones. So I have two boys and two girls. 
So I have a four-year-old, a two-and-a-half-year-old, and then two nine-month-old twins. Which ones are the girls? The girls are the twins. How are you going to raise your daughters so that they... To be strong and have a voice and not accept shit. <laughs> Thank you, Jessica. My next guest is Mia. Everyone in our small town in Maine saw the abuse, and no one ever said anything. Welcome, Mia. So, Mia, it seems like I've known you for a long time, but not really known you. Do you remember when you first reached out to me? We've had several communications. One was around some activity about a quartet that was coming to play in Rockport, and mm -hmm. I wrote a couple of letters about that because one of the people in the quartet had been convicted of abusing a child, and you had an effort going to, to have people take a look at that and see if that is the kind of musician that we want to be included in our local programming. You're very passionate about this issue. Yes, I am. Have you, have you always been? I've always been ever since, you know, ever since I went through this issue as a victim of domestic violence. And then later in my work with children and women as a therapist, when I was 18, I met somebody who had signed up to be in the military before I met him. And so we dated for a short period of time and then he went away to basic training. We realized that I could not go with him to the foreign country where he was committed to unless we were legally married. So I got legally married very young. How old were you? I, it was right before I turned 19. And so we did go overseas and I lived uh, with him as an army wife. The legal marriage lasted probably something over three years, but there were many separations when there were episodes of abuse. What was your life like before you met him? I was trying to figure out what to do next. I was taking a couple college classes at night and working in a nursing home and then working as a nanny and just figuring out, I guess, how to launch myself, you know, more into full-time college, which unfortunately I gave up for several years because of this. Did you have a stable family life? I had been in foster care as a child from about age eight on, and then been in many different schools and homes and, and places. And then I had a, a stable family from about 15 on, a family that later adopted me. Do you think that anything in your experience before you were 15, when it was chaotic, might have led you to this individual or made you more vulnerable to him? Possibly. Possibly just having, you know, also a bad case of, of the wrong values, as a lot of teenagers do. If somebody is, you know, very classically good-looking or commanding or gregarious or interesting or all of those things, and then that urgency to sort of make a decision fast because the person was going overseas. Right. Um, and just what we get from living in our culture, which is that I believe that girls and women are trained to put up with a lot to be in a relationship and sometimes not even to question it. Do you remember your first impression of him? Oh, my first impression of him was just based on looks. It was just based on the fact that he was very you know, commanding and, and very good looking. Do you remember any signs of problems in the beginning? Right after the marriage, I had made some kind of mistake and I don't know what it was, something I'd overlooked or something I'd done. And when I told him we were walking down a driveway and he just kicked me and it shocked me. And how long did you know him before he kicked you? Maybe three months. It was a kick in the rear end as if to say, that was really stupid. And then how long after, before there was another physical? I, I know it happened overseas. I know it happened in Florida. I know it happened in Camden. I know it happened everywhere we lived together. At one time, he picked me up in a public place, a restaurant where there was music and dancing, and he threw me across the floor. I mean, flying through the air and then landed on oh the God. floor on my back. And And at that time, there was somebody there that was very, very large, and simply wrapped their arms around him and quickly walked him to the door and put him out of the place. But most of the time, people were afraid to intervene. So things happened in front of other people. Things happened when we were alone. 
once every month, once every couple months, and sometimes I fought back and sometimes I didn't. Do you remember what your state of mind was at the time? Well, there's that cycle they talk about where the person apologizes and is sorry, and then there's this time of sort of peacefulness, and then there's this building of tension. So he would apologize? Yeah, he would apologize. It ranged from acting sorry to acting sort of grudgingly sorry or justifying it. You know, but the sad thing was that it took me, you know, it took me several cycles to be able to leave. How long were you in the relationship while it was abusive? Well, it was abusive essentially the whole time besides that initial honeymoon period. So, and I guess we were married about three plus years, but there were periods of time that I would leave for two to three months sometimes. Did you ever talk to your family or friends about the overall picture of what was going on? Yeah, um, my close friends knew it, and some people in my family knew it, and I think people felt frozen and like they didn't know what to do. Did they know everything, do you think? They know as much as they wanted to know, let me put it that way. And there were times when people saw evidence on me of, of bruising, or one time I had my arm, you know, in a sling, something got dislocated. One time around Thanksgiving time, the best people were my friends who said, you know, come here, come stay with us. You know, some friends in Washington, D.C., some friends in Boston. And um, those were the best people, the people that were really proactive and just said, you know, we're really worried about you. You need to get away. You need to leave. And please, we'll offer you a safe haven. But the others, what would they do? Just kind of what people do around domestic violence, I think. Look the other way, minimize it. Uh, It makes them uncomfortable. And um, I think people have varying levels of understanding about it. And so a lot of people would just kind of be silent about it. Isn't that crazy? Like Mm -hmm. looking back? Yeah. Like is it hard for you to believe that people who cared about you knew that you were being physically hurt by this person and didn't do anything about it or say anything to you? Yeah. It's disappointing. If I know that somebody has hurt somebody that I know, Bob and I have no problem not doing business transactions with that person. Do you remember feeling trapped? I did feel trapped. I mean, of course, in Europe, I was um, an army wife far away from everyone that I knew. And, you know, army culture is just like a lot of patriarchal culture. Violent behavior can be the norm in people's work lives and in their personal lives. When we were in the United States, I was a young woman with, without yet a college degree. I didn't, I didn't actually go to college till, till I was 24. And limited options. Around here, winter still meant a shutdown of a lot of businesses just because it wasn't as thriving. There weren't as many people as there are now. There were fewer businesses open year-round. You don't feel like you have that many choices. Was there a financial abuse going on? Just a lot of control, I would say. You know, I remember that he didn't want us to have a phone. It meant that if I needed help, I had to, like, make a run for it or go to a neighbor's or, or try to get away and you make couldn't, a call. You couldn't call the police. You couldn't call 911. No, I couldn't. How close was the nearest neighbor? One time we lived next door to people, and a man in that apartment was also being physically abusive to his partner, and that was really horrific just to think, I'm in this boat, and then some some nights of the week I can hear fighting over there and hear that somebody else is in this boat. We never talked about it. We looked at each other on the street, and we looked at each other in passing, and we never spoke about it. And She probably heard what was going on. And I, and I wonder about it all the time because those people happen to still be married. Like everyone who goes through this or has in the past, I'm always hoping they're seeing the posters and getting the mailings of finding our voices. So there was that control. What did he limit you seeing your family or friends? No, but it just became, it, it became more um, embarrassing to see my family and friends when things weren't going well. I think that I finally was able to leave for good because I finally thought I'm going to be running out of places to go. And my friends love me, but they don't really understand this. They don't understand why it's hard to leave. And, and at that time, I didn't understand why it was so hard to leave either, because your confidence gets completely shot. You become afraid of things you were never afraid of. 
you you just lose your sense of agency. And I remember thinking, I got to make this time stick because if I don't leave and stay gone, I'm I'm going to get killed. There were many incidences that just were very very scary. There was one time when I actually was battered. We were staying out in the country with relatives and I got to a road and I had friends that said, if you ever need help, we'll pick you up, call us. And I was able to make it upstairs to a phone in this person's family house. There was a phone and call my two friends, two women that live nearby. And they said, we'll just come and look on that road for you. And so I just had sort of a nightgown on with jeans that I pulled on and a pair of boots and I ran outside and I was waiting for my friends on the road and he came and got me in a car and basically held me down by the neck on his knee. He said, you think you're injured and you want to go to the hospital? I'll take you to the hospital. So he took me to the hospital. I went into the emergency room to get examined because I thought something was dislocated in my shoulder and he was waiting outside. And actually what the police officer did, somebody I'd known since childhood, was he said, you and I are going to go out the back door I was shocked that the policeman was afraid enough that he, or unwilling to have a confrontation, that he wanted us to go out the back door and him to put me in the patrol car. If he saw there was an injury, why didn't he arrest this your your husband? Right? We're talking back in like 1981. I do remember getting help from New Hope for Women. Oh, back then when I had one of the first uh, protection from abuse orders, I would often leave for at least a night or two, and sometimes I would leave for. A couple of months. So I can think of three or four different times that I left the state or went away or hid out in the state. And then I just started feeling like, well, you know, four or so different people have given me plane tickets or opened their homes to me. And they are worried about me and they're perplexed about why I can't stay gone. And I just need to stay gone. Did you remember how you got out finally? The final time, I think I just, I went back to my family home and I just started living back at my family home. I knew that he was destructive towards property with that person and I knew that he was destructive, you know, towards property with another person later. Is he still in the area? Yes. Oh my God. Did you ever run into him in the street or something? It's rare, but every once in a while, every once in a great while, what is it? What, what, My what, husband and I have run into him. What kind of what, what feeling do you have when that happens? It's just sort of a feeling of nothingness, and then if I think about it, gladness that that that's so far behind me, Are you and angry? that I have such a supportive, loving partner. And do you feel like he should have been held accountable? There were several different times when police didn't do their job the way they should have or didn't uphold restraining orders or violations of restraining orders. Um, There was a time when we lived out of state that police stood there and watched as he threw my belongings out onto the lawn instead of just demanding that he leave and let me gather my belongings. There was one police officer who was, he was a sheriff. He's passed away now. He was a lovely person. And on on the morning that I talked about where I was out on the road waiting for my friends, and then he came and got me, that was actually Thanksgiving. And this sheriff came and took me to get my belongings. And he stood with his hand on his holster about 10 feet away from the Thanksgiving dining room table and just let me get my stuff. And the family sat there, him included, the batterer included, sort of eating while this person stood there with his hand on his holster. And that was the one officer I can say that I felt that gave me confidence to to be in there gathering my belongings. There were other times where people either acted afraid of him or were completely ineffectual or completely untrained in domestic violence and insensitive. And how long after that did you meet Bob? Well, I met Bob before that, actually. I met Bob when I was a 15-year-old. He was painting my high school boyfriend's house. And we re-met shortly thereafter. And then we met in spring of 1999, talked on the phone every day for, you know, 
10 days, went and had coffee, and then we just were inseparable from that time on. And what a difference from your first marriage. Yes. Yeah. What was that like, to, to have to be in something so different? Were you afraid at first that he would Were you worried? No, I wasn't. I know him to be, you know, an even-tempered person, a uh, passionate person, but an even-tempered person who is, who is a gentle person. Like, does Bob ever shove you? Absolutely not. Does he ever grab your wrist really hard? <laughs> no, absolutely not. And could you ever imagine doing that? No. I think that's, that's something else that women have to understand, that that is not normal, right? Yeah. Maybe if we're having a tickle fight after <laughs> yoga or something like that, but no, absolutely not. I've never been worried, and that's a great feeling. Because when you're with this other person, do you remember what you were feeling like all the time? It's just a, a mid-level anxiety all the time. And I remember at the end of the relationship, when we're talking about confidence, at the end of the relationship, there were so many things I was afraid of that I'd never been afraid of in my life. Like, I was afraid of the dark. I was kind of afraid to drive, like at night. And just a lack of inner sort of um, strength and, and belief in myself, because it just gets eroded when somebody treats you like an object just to be hit and hurt. I was ashamed because I didn't understand, and I didn't understand the many reasons that it's hard for a woman to leave, whether it's fear or socioeconomic or limited options or worry about what the community members will think of her. How, how do you think it is different when you're in a small town going through that? Well, it's interesting. Um, in some ways... It's good to be in a small town because people hear and know about it. And if there are people that know you, they know it's not just rumor. In other ways, it's difficult because it divides people's loyalties. People don't know what to do. You know, what if a person is the only person around that has this particular good or service that people want to buy? If all of us boycotted businesses of people who are batterers or for that matter, you know, racist, people would really feel the impact. But that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen that way. Do you have a lot of friends who've been through this? Yes. I mean, an alarming number of women in my acquaintance, um, and we're talking a wide range of people, but very many of them, professional women who are my age, have been through at least one battering relationship. So one where there was physical violence. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Just thinking through several of my friends, I can think of quite a few. Do you talk about it? Yeah, we do. We do. Sometimes not with the same urgency that we did before. Let's say if they're my age mates and this stuff happened to us 40 years ago, we're not, we'll often say to each other, isn't it so wonderful we have a loving husband, you know, for those of us that do. What would you want people to know who have not been through it? That when people say, why doesn't she just leave? They need to understand that most people who are battered women are in relationships which have stripped them of confidence, which have sometimes taken away financial choices. And a major reason is fear. If, if one's been conditioned to fear another human being and believe that they will be hurt by them because it's happened many times... It's simply not an easy thing to pack up and leave and feel confident that that person won't come after you. And it happens all the time. The research says that when a woman is leaving is one of the most dangerous times mm -hmm. in terms of being killed. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very, very difficult. I would ask people to try to get educated about it and understand and talk to people who've been battered and read their stories and understand why it's not a simplistic uh, issue with a simple answer. I think people have been raised to look the other way and to pretend they don't know what's going on, to sometimes not even intervene if they see something happen in public. And it's scary to intervene, and it's scary to take a position. It's scary to not do business with somebody anymore because they hurt, you know, you're a family member or somebody that, that you knew closely, I think much more education and training needs to happen from a really young age 
for boys and for girls about what's unacceptable and how to help people you love when they're in a battering relationship. Did anybody from the past ever say to you that they, they, they wish they had stepped up more? I can't recall. And that probably means no. But the people who did, particularly women friends, really helped with something solid, like a place to be, a place to live. Why are you coming forward right now, for instance, publicly talking about your experience? It just seems like the time is right for me to do so, and the time in my life is right to do so. It doesn't feel like fresh trauma to me. And it was also prompted by um, just somebody I know who's another young person who's going to be speaking out about this. And, you know, knowing that this is fresh and recent for her and that the troubles are ongoing and the intimidation and bad behavior are ongoing in her life, it just seemed like the time to add my voice and, and step out, not only to tell my story, but to tell my story in support of the people who are going through it right now, trying to get away, trying to heal, and being brave and telling their stories like all the people on your posters. Thank you for listening. To learn more about our survivor-powered nonprofit organization, Finding Our Voices, and to find out how you can help us break the silence, visit findingourvoices.net. Feel free to get in touch with me, Patricia McLean, founder and president of Finding Our Voices, at hello at findingourvoices.net. Until next time, remember, love should feel good. It's been a long, long time. It's been a long